Academy of Esports Podcast. I am your host, James O'Hagan, and today I have the pleasure to boil her up once again as I get to interview a professor from my alma mater, Purdue University, Dr. Robert Giardo. Now, Dr. Giardo is a uh, professor at the university, but focuses specifically in on the, well, you're the director of the Purdue Regional Center for Development and also the uh, community around the state of Indiana. Is that correct? Yes. All right. And you have a very uh, eccentric background. I noticed that you you uh, were in Mississippi, but found your way to Indiana. So very happy to have you at the university. But before we dive too much into that, there are some other additional questions that we like to ask here on the podcast to introduce people to you. First question up, what is a game, doesn't have to be a video game, that stands out to you as having been important to you at some point in your life? And why was that experience meaningful? Thanks, James, for having me today here. I'm excited. Um, what game? Uh, Microsoft Flight Simulator is one that I've enjoyed tremendously. I think it has helped me, uh, obviously, to learn new skills, right? I don't, I'm not a pilot, so getting to, and then uh, chatting with the community, I think, around Microsoft Flight Simulator users, I think, is one of the best things that that game had to offer. And I know there's communities around games that I think are very powerful. But yeah, that's that's the one that that I've used. I've, I was obsessed with with that game when I was a teenager back in the day. I'm not going to say the year, but you know what year, roughly mid 90s, <laughs> mid to late 90s. And um, and the, the newest version just came out about two years ago or so. And so I was there playing it. And so I that's the game that I really liked. And I think it has taught me many, many things. Do you have the full setup with the yoke and the and the throttles and everything, or you're just like a regular like me? I've just got the controller or a keyboard, and I try to fly best that I can. That that's exactly that's exactly my case. Yeah, yeah. But as you're as you're alluding to, I mean, you could take this a lot more seriously. You could, again, go into the full depth of what it means to at least simulate flight, especially in certain conditions. What I love about it is flying to those areas that you don't normally get to fly. Like, yeah. uh, you know, as, as you, as I'm sure from your work, there's a lot of areas in Indiana where probably people have not flown over. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> so. that's correct. And now that you mentioned that, I remember back in the nineties, I was flying out from O'Hare. That was a default airport. Mm -hmm. um, and the first time I arrived at O'Hare, it brought back that memory. I'm like, oh, wow, I've seen this in the simulator and now I'm actually here. So, yeah, yeah, totally agree with you. My my remembrance was I started playing it in the, in the late 80s and it was Miggs Field, which is right on the outskirts of Chicago, which is no longer even there. Uh, that was a political, uh, turns into a park. Mayor Daly decided at one point in the middle of the night to carve up the runway. And so, yep, that that airport is no longer in existence. Okay, good to yeah. know. Good yeah. to know. Now, second question could be totally eccentric, or maybe it's quite traditional, but what is your superpower, that thing you do better than most people, or what do you wish you could do? Great question, James. Um, I'm a humble type of a guy, so it's hard for me to say that I have, if any, superpowers, but I think now in my professional career and so forth, I think what I've noticed is that I, I'm a team player. I... I support my team. I go 
to a great extent to defend, to support, promote, help my team. So I think that, uh, and I'm, I'm, uh, I'm a guy that typically gets along with mostly everybody. Um, and I think that not many people have that ability. And so I, 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 I think that that's part of my superpower, if I could call it in any way, would be team player. And I, I'd like to get along. I, I like to give people, I don't judge them, obviously, at the first instance or anything like that. But I think that I'm, I'm, I'm more uh, tolerant of certain behaviors and 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 uh, ways of thinking that than most of my friends. So, well, and it's like it's nice to hear that I have a daughter who's considering Purdue University for next year, and it's nice to hear that there are professors. And again, I, my experience has always been with Purdue that the, the professors yeah. have always been welcoming and not too judgy. Uh, yeah, yeah, people. yeah. That's uh, very important for sure. Right. All right. Third big question. Name that one song. Whenever it hits your speakers, you're going to sing along to it. Summer Whether of 69. Good or bad. What's that? Summer of 69. Brian Adams. Okay. All right. That is that is one that evokes quite a bit of memories for me, but for you. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. But for you as well? Yeah. Yeah, I like that song. I was in um, middle school or high school. Uh, and I just love the lyrics. I I got I was fortunate enough to see him live, and it's just a song that has stuck with me uh, for whatever reason. And every time I hear it, I just sing along wherever I am. If I'm with my teenage daughters, it doesn't go really well. But you know, <laughs> it is what it is. With mine either. No, nope, <laughs> mine can't either. Now, um, getting in, in, into sort of the meat of our conversation here, we'll lead in with what's the one thing on your field that surprises people when they first hear about it? Now, again, you are the director of the Purdue Center for the Regional Development. And they may say, what the heck is even that? Like, what's a college professor doing as a director for this regional development? So I guess, again, what is the surprise when you start to tell people about the work that you do? Well, it, it depends on the audience, but typically they, they have a hard time visualizing uh, what regional is. It varies a lot by region. Uh, turfism is a big issue. So that's the first thing is why would anybody want to do anything regional? That's the first kind of question I get. And then when you get into the more details of whatever project it is we're doing, I think that the question then or the, the surprise then is like, Oh, I did not know that. And as a professor, that's very, that's good to hear, right? That you're, that you're educating, that you're working with folks, you're increasing awareness. And so I think that that's always a, a very good day for any professor when you accomplish that. What I've learned, James, however, is you have got to be mindful of who you're working with and not, not come across too hard as I am the university professor coming to lecture you, that is a non-stopper and it's not, no, that does not fly. Mm -hmm. And, and I, uh, I know from my experience at the university and knowing friends and people around the state, uh, Indiana is a very unique state in a lot of ways, especially considering your work. I know you're doing a lot of work with the Indiana office of community and rural affairs, specifically around broadband expansion which again, as you alluded to, sometimes you go into these communities and they have very strict boundaries, guidelines, walls up about what's how they would like to see things roll out in their area. But you do a lot of work around the idea of um, 
digital inclusion, right? Which Correct. I think COVID has has shown just how far we have to go. Is that is that when it comes to broadband accessibility, not just in rural, uh, excuse me, in in poor and urban areas, but even particularly in a lot of our um, rural areas as well, too. No, definitely. I mean, you, the 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 digital divide is a rural and urban issue, like you pointed out. That's that's for sure. Um, before COVID, people had a hard time visualizing or understanding why it was an issue. Uh, you know, the internet came up with a kind of entertainment type of situation. It was not seen as a quality of life issue. Uh, but then COVID hits, and the, as I've mentioned to several of my colleagues, I think the awareness on the on the issue just got sped up by five to ten years minimum because of COVID. And so that's that's always important to to keep in mind is that people have their unique background, their unique area where they are, and you have going back to the superpower thing, you have to listen, you have to understand the audience to better convey whatever it is you want to convey. I know that many times we come in with preconceived notions of what the message should be, but you quickly learn that you, you may have to tweak it because it's not being well received or not. It's not, not that it's not well received. It's just not resonating. Well, and as we started to see too, uh, thinking about again, the lack of accessibility in some of these rural areas, how big of an issue are we talking about here? I mean, just your, your focus is more on the state of Indiana itself. And again, there's a whole lot of farmland in Indiana. There's you get outside of Indianapolis, you get outside of Hamilton County, uh, the Merrillville, the region, as we call it in Northwest Indiana, uh, Fort Wayne, there's a lot of farm and, and areas where, you know, people even kind of joke about it, but it's turn off the paved road. Uh, how big of an issue right now are we seeing, especially at the state of Indiana level? Let's take that as an example that a lot of other states are probably facing. What are we looking at here as far as need for dollars, perhaps, or infrastructure need? Or is it a, is it a change of mindset when it comes to accessibility? So the change of mindset, COVID, has helped in that big time. Um, like I said, before COVID, it was harder to explain why they needed to to address this situation. Now, because of COVID, I think it's clear. It is a big issue. The, the problem is, James, there's are, it's, uh, there's several layers to it. So it's not a clear-cut binary yes-no situation. Uh, many areas do have access to Internet, but it's either... Uh, obsolete technologies or does not fulfill their needs or it's too expensive. So we are now beyond the yes, no binary, do you have internet to doesn't meet my needs type of question. And that one raises a lot of totally different layers of issues that go into that. So the how big the problem is depends which layer you're looking at, right? If it's a binary yes, no, then yes, uh, there are areas that are lacking broadband infrastructure. Uh, if it's more of the, does it fulfill my needs, then there's a different answer to that. And there's a, I think it's bigger, it's larger. It's, it's, a, it's a bigger issue when you add the, does it fulfill my needs layer? And then the affordability issue is another layer that you have to throw on top that also changes the optics of this. And you realize that it is an issue uh, in rural and urban 
affordability specifically, and even outdated technology, James. I'm sure you've read about redlining and other issues that have popped up and, and that affect mostly urban areas. So it is a kind of a, a, a multi, multi-layer issue that touches everything. And so now we are, there are many, many people, organizations working to, to address this situation. Now, from my own experience working in a rural school district and just moving to the countryside, I lived for a year in Forreston, Illinois. Don't go looking for it on a map. You'll, you'll, you'll miss it. It's one of those areas southwest of Rockford, about 45 minutes, very rural area. And again, I'm the tech director. I had moved out to the school district to be the technology director. And so what's my first call? I got to get internet access out to the house. Call the local cable company and they said, well, you're about four miles from the nearest endpoint. And I said, oh, so you guys are going to run a cable out here? They're like, no, no, that's that's not <laughs> happening. My choices were satellite. Now, this was 10 years ago, satellite internet service, which if you would, now well, we can maybe talk about the what Elon Musk has going on right now, because it's showing, I think, a proof of concept, at least in Ukraine right now, as to being able to provide continuous access. But at the time, satellite service was limited to about 450 megabytes bytes of data a day. That was my cap, which if, if anybody ever watches a YouTube or a Netflix video, uh, about a two hour movie runs you about a gig and a half of data. So you couldn't even watch a Netflix movie on this. And I, and, and Netflix was a thing 10 years ago, those young, young people. Um, but the other part of it too, was the only other option I had was a point to point connection, which sounds great because it gets you internet service. But if you're trying to play video games, if you're trying to do some video chat, even, uh, the distance between these connections, the high ping times, as they're called, sometimes keep people from being able to participate in real-time ways. But it looks like Indiana, my, my problem is, is, an, is a microcosm of, I think, the bigger problems that a lot of people have, especially in rural areas. And that includes school districts as well, because sometimes internet service providers can only give you like a T1 line or a T3 line or something of that nature. But it looks like what what I've read, read about you in the state of Indiana, Indiana is taking a little bit different approach to how to connect uh, the parts of the, of the state. In particular, there's the Indiana Connectivity Program, um, which it says is awarding funding to providers, but in a distinct and innovative way. What makes this so innovative, this, this program? So that's a great question. Um, and yeah, we've got to discuss technologies, please, because I get that question a lot. But so here in Indiana, at least, and in many other states, the, the programs that have been set up to identify and build broadband infrastructure are mostly provider-driven. So the provider comes- so Your Comcast, your-, your, your Yeah, the, those are the big ones. You also have the, the, the middle ones and the small ones, but it's provider-driven, meaning the provider, whatever mechanism the state has in place, the provider comes in and says, I'm going to go here, here, and there, and I need X amount of money, and off we go. The Indiana Connectivity Program is the money ends up with providers, but the process initiates in a way different way, in a very different way. And this is a Hoosier, a resident, or a business applying and saying, I don't have internet, I would like some internet, or I currently have internet, but I would like faster internet. So that may sound uh, very, very petty, very insignificant, James, but it changes the entire process because then the providers react to 
what the consumers are saying rather than communities and consumers reacting to what providers say. So that's a fundamental change, and that's why I'm a fan of ICP because of that reason. I mean, NLC is doing this, which is the older program. The they're doing connections. Yeah, they're they're doing their their they're they're doing their part, but ICP is really consumer driven. Uh, and now there's a multiple steps. It does not guarantee you're going to get service, but at least the resident or the business initiates that process where in, in other places or in other states or other programs, the provider is the one that does that. And in this, the, in the ICP program, is this where you reach a critical mass of people in a community asking for it, which then starts to drive the dollars towards it? So how, how it works is you apply, you can go online or you can call a call center. And then those that batch of addresses is then analyzed. And if there is previous funding already associated with them, like federal programs or previous rounds of state programs, they are removed. Uh, then the, the, the remaining addresses then are posted, are staged for challenge where providers come in and say, wait a minute, I already have a footprint there. You don't need to fund this. We have some, some way to check on that, and it's mostly speed tests or network uh, or footprints of providers. If, they re, if, they, if nobody challenges that address, then it moves on to the next phase where it's bundled. So uh, we try to, if it's a neighborhood, obviously that's a bundle. Um, that we have also individual addresses that are bundles. And then from there, they're put out for bid. And so then providers come in and say, you know what, I'm going to bid on this, this bundle, it be at a single address or multiple address. And then that's where we are now is then that ends up in the cheapest cost to the state to subsidize that because it is a bid uh, that has gone through that process. So that's basically how it works, James. Now, now I'm probably going to ask a Pandora's box of question that's just going to open up a whole bunch of stuff here. But Dr. Gallardo, why isn't internet service a public utility? What is why isn't why isn't why isn't at this point why are we not looking at funding internet service like we would a public utility with proper infrastructure and equal access for everybody? Realizing again that that the internet service, as we found during the pandemic, is so vital not just to school and and being connected to people and work but as part of the fabric of the global economy. So my take on, and I'm not, I'm not an expert in utilities or anything of that nature, but based on what I understand, you've got to put it into historical context. How was the internet born? Somebody's going to say Al Gore, right? (laughs) But whatever. The point is it started with the private sector. It was a government-developed technology, but then it was successfully commercialized in a way, and then that opened the door to other uses, entertainment, and then social media came along, and then e-commerce came along. And so at that point, it was not seen as a utility. It was not expected to be a utility, and by the time we realized, or they realized, it is actually behaving like a utility there's a lot of interests already there. And so I think that it's going to be a very tough, uh, it's going to be very tough to revert it back or, or make it f- 
fit under a utility? If you ask me personally as Roberto, professor of Purdue, is it a utility? It is. I have no doubt about it, but the technicalities of it are it's a different story. I know that in uh, Tennessee, Chattanooga in particular was a city that decided that they own the water company in the city and they were going to start their own gig service to the homes using the uh, infrastructure of the water utility to kind of layer on uh, was it the was it the water and electric? Maybe it was maybe it was electric, and they owned the. It was anyway, electric. Yeah, it was electric, and I know that the state of Tennessee, seeing this, decided to put the kibosh on on uh, their efforts and basically penned them in to a geographic location. Um, it feels like it, I don't want to. Well, I don't want to so, throw this around loosely, but I'll say it anyway. It almost feels like internet service providers are kind of like the mob in a lot of ways where they have their territories and you do not, you know, do business in other person's territories or, or unless you buy them out, it would seem. Am I, am I, am I thinking too wrong? Maybe I shouldn't say mob. Maybe I'll say like the old wrestling businesses, you know, there used to be all these regional wrestling companies and now there's only one big wrestling. Well, there's two big wrestling companies, but. So yes. Why is it a utility? It's because it has, you have to have access to it for quality of life purposes, but it also utility tends to be, tends to gravitate towards a monopoly. Uh, let's put that aside and let's look at how the internet market behaves Mm -hmm. And now you realize it is essential for quality of life, and it also behaves in, 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 in a monopoly type of ways most of the time. And so why not? Well, be, for the reasons I explained earlier, but you're, you're right in the sense that there really is not a lot of competition. I, I can't sugarcoat that. Mm -hmm. You may have providers that are competing within a large area. Uh, you may have multiple providers listed on the FCC database, which we know, um, you know, overstates coverage. But at the end of the day, at the end of the day, James, you're going to find that the there's going to be an 800-pound gorilla in, in certain areas, and then that's that's how it is right and so people ask me why is it so expensive the u.s compared to other countries has one of the most expensive slowest internet service uh in in the first world and so people ask me why and then i said well it's a multiple things but the reason if you ask any economist they're going to tell you that the beauty of competition is exactly to bring down cost right price and increase quality. Otherwise, you're out. You're out. Mm -hmm. You can't compete. So that's, I think, one of the issues that it's going to be just like reframing it a utility. Truly generating competition is going to be a very uphill battle. I, I, I kind of chuckled in my head when you started talking about, um, you know, speeds. I was in the west of Ireland over Christmas and I was able to get over a gig speed on my cell phone in the west of Ireland, on my cell phone, not on an internet plan or anything, just using my cell phone ran a speed test. I got a gig speed on a 5G network uh, in an area that is much like, you know, much smaller than, you know, if you go west or east from where you are in West Lafayette, 
um, it was surprising to see that. And it was almost like it was a wake up call to realize that, yes, we are behind in a lot of ways uh, compared to the world and Internet access. The last question for you, what do you see as the near future uh, to change all this? Again, you're doing the work with the ICP. Uh, states are looking at this in different ways, I think. Do you really feel that this is going to be a sustainable change or are we going to continue to see the slow slog going forward? No, man. Why do you ask that, James? <laughs> I have to ask the tough question. Come on. This is so, your guess. This is your best guess. Here's and, my spill. Yeah. There are roughly 300 to $350 billion earmarked for broadband in some form or fashion starting from two years ago with CARES and COVID. $350 billion. Maybe pushing it to $400 billion. Deloitte did a study a while back that found that for us to push fiber as far as we can push it and then use wireless and do whatever would cost between 150 and $170 billion. Obviously, that's three, four, five years ago. So now let's be generous and let's call it 250, 250. We have more than 250 allocated. The question is, how will that money be allocated and will we move the needle? Mm -hmm. The optimist in me says we will move the needle. There's no doubt about it. There will be movement. It's evil twin says we will not once in a lifetime opportunity. And the way I'm seeing things right now, I don't think we're going to be able to check that off our to-do list and then move on to applications and other stuff, right? That are equally as important devices and skills and so forth. So it will move the needle. Yes. It will make a splash. Yes. Will it solve the problem in its entire, like not entirely, but to a degree where we can quasi turn the page? I'm afraid not. I hope I'm wrong. I hope you come to me two, three, four, five years from now and say you were very wrong. And I'm going to say I was very wrong and I'm so happy I was wrong. <laughs> All right, okay. I, sw I said that was the last question, but I just have one little quick follow-up. Okay. Is it going to be 5G service or satellite service like Elon Musk is putting out into Ukraine right now, again, to provide services for those people in that country? Is it going to be the cell phone companies who are going to beat the uh, cable uh, internet service providers, the traditional internet service providers, or what? Because again, I look around and I say, if I can get a gig on my phone in the west of Ireland, why do I need to hook up a connection to my house on a on a on a something that's not going to necessarily be as fast? Is that the big game changer? I'm not a fan of satellite, and I'm not a fan of 5G. I'm well. I'm still on the fence on that. Okay. I haven't gone either way. Um, from a purely engineering perspective, if we were to speak to engineers only and the network engineer, fiber is the future-proof technology. I know we have to be tech agnostic. And so many times now I'm a, I ask myself, do we have to be tech agnostic? Because there is a technology in place. Is it very expensive? It is, but it is again, based purely on engineering things, it is the the future-proof technology. 
5G can reach similar speeds to fiber now. The problem is it's millimetric radio wave and it has a very short range. And it's very susceptible to obstruction from trees, us, buildings. So when people tell me 5G is going to address this issue simply because it's fast like fiber, but it's wireless, they don't understand that they're going to have to build a gazillion micro microcells to accommodate that traffic. Now, 6G is already being discussed. I don't know what's the technicality of that, but 5G, the true 5G, because there's low band and high band 5G, the low band is already being pushed out there as 5G. The high band is the one that's truly the 5G, at least from the theoretical side of things. You're going to have to build micro towers everywhere. Mm. And if you're if fed by fiber, and if you are going to do that, why not get with the fiber already? So, uh, I don't know. There's going to have to be multiple technology. I understand there's going to be areas you simply cannot reach with fiber. Mm -hmm. It's too expensive. Uh, so I, I'm okay with that. And I'm, I'm, I know it's going to have to be. But what I tell folks is whenever possible, push the fiber as far as you can get it and then complement with other technologies. Well, uh, Dr. Roberto Gallardo, a professor at Purdue University, you will be a part of our panel April 8th and 9th. Well, I, the panel's on April 8th, uh, but, the, but the convention, uh, Purdue University Games Make a Difference Symposium will be at, uh, we're going to be at the CoREC uh, for that conference. Oh, excuse me, I keep saying conference, symposium. I, want, I like to use the fancier word. Dr. Gallardo, thank you so much for being a guest on the Academy of Esports podcast today. Thank you for the opportunity, James. Great to see you, man. You take care. Thank you. That will do it for this week on the Academy of Esports. I've been your host, James O'Hagan. Esports are organized competitive video games allowing schools to redefine their athletic culture, diversify opportunities for student participation, promote good physical and mental health, increase collegiate scholarship pathways, and play games. We can never forget the importance of play. The mission of the Academy of Esports is to support these ideals. The vision of the Academy of Esports is for all students to experience the fun and joy of playing competitive video games. You may follow me on Twitter at Jim O'Hagan. That's at J-I-M-O-H-A-G-A-N and through the Academy of Esports account at T-A-O Esports. It's a great way to get the latest blog posts, podcast episodes, and news coming out of esports and education. And remember, you can continue your engagement by going to www.taoesports.com. You can also connect through Facebook at www.facebook.com slash taoesports. Thanks again for listening, and I look forward to our time again next week.